you have a copy of God's Word, please go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 10. I have a video as you're turning there, Matthew chapter 10. It's just a short, it's like a minute and a half. Uh, we'll watch that and then we'll jump into today's message. Investors use risk-reward ratios to compare an investment's expected return to the risk taken to capture those returns. It's calculated by comparing what the investor stands to lose to the amount by which the investor expects to profit when she closes the position. Say an investor buys 100 shares of XYZ Company at $20 each and places a stop-loss order on her position at $15. The stop-loss order protects her from losing more than $5 per share. Risk reward ratios cannot be calculated without a stop-loss order. Meanwhile, the investor expects XYZ's shares to climb to $30. The investor has risked $5 per share to earn an expected $10 per. Her risk-reward ratio is 1 to 2. Every trade entails some degree of risk. Riskier investments require a greater return to make the investment worthwhile. While optimal risk-reward ratios vary by trading strategies, ratios that are 1 to 1 mean the risk equals the potential return. Such trades are not as favorable as those that are 1 to 3, where the expected return is 3 times the risk. Knowing the risk-reward ratio on any trade protects investors and their accounts. The risk-reward ratio is an effective risk management tool and should be used before entering into any position. Yeah, I do other things than Looney Tunes, okay? <laughs> Multifaceted. Just to show of hands, I know that was quick. How many of you guys or gals understood that? Show of hands. Let me, let me make it super easy and simple. When you invest money or time or effort into something, you hope that the investment that you put in is less than the reward you receive out of it. Right? That's it. Why did I play this? Well, as we're thinking about where we're at, Jesus is going to talk about investment. He's going to talk about risk and reward today in chapter 10, believe it or not. And where we are as a country and as a culture right now, we're talking a lot about spending money, aren't we? We're talking about infrastructure. We're talking about spending. We're, we're talking about budgets. Now, I don't really care how you feel about all that, because you need to remember this isn't your home, but... If you also remember, we just had Memorial Day weekend. And if you're familiar with some of the sayings that people say during Memorial Day, it's um, some are, all gave some, but some gave all, right? And so this is this idea of their investment into our country, into our nation. And so as you think about risk and reward, Jesus is going to talk about that. And the title of today's message is SENT, S-E-N-T, not C-E-N-T, which you might be thinking about if we're talking about investment. Jesus is going to talk to us today about our lives being invested, about the risk and reward of being part of the kingdom. Remember, this is just on the end of his Sermon on the Mount. He's proved his authority, and now he's going to practice his authority in a far different, and I would say even better way. Because the way he practices his authority in the text today is the reason that you are here this very moment. So I think that matters. And what I want for you to understand is Christ calls us 
to a costly service in the midst of opposition and suffering, and yet promises us through faith. God's sovereign care and protection will sustain us and, in fact, in the end, even reward us. So before we read and exposit chapter 10 of Matthew's gospel, let's pray. Will you pray with me? Our great God in heaven, we come to you, our most merciful Father, and ask that you might bless our hearts today, right now. God, we pray that your name would be made great upon the earth, that all people would come to know your gospel, that those who are ignorant and captivated in darkness would behold your glorious light, that by this same light we, and therefore they too, might inherit eternal life. God, we pray that this chapter of Matthew would revive, renew, and perhaps for those who don't yet know you, even resurrect your hearts. God, we praise you through your Spirit, for your Son whom you sent. We ask that for ourselves, if we have, by your grace, had our hearts illuminated through Christ, that you might continue to increase our knowledge of you by your Word, and in the practice of godliness by the power of your Spirit. We ask that we might all together worship you, you alone, both by mouth and heart, and therefore render to you appropriate services due to our Christ, our Master, our King, our Lord. Father, so we thank you for your word today in Matthew 10. And it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. So as we look at chapter 10, I really have to start in chapter 9. The first thing I think Jesus shows us as we look at this risk-reward ratio for you to calculate that, and I hope you calculate it correctly, uh, the first thing he talks about here is the condition of the fall, the condition by the fall. And so for that, we need to look at Matthew 9. 35 through 10.1, Jesus went through all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. And here it is, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And then, as we get into today's chapter, verse 1, as he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. I want you to pause right there for a minute, and I want for us to first then talk to you about this, the condition by the fall. Here's the condition that these people are in, and if we're honest... It's the same condition that we're in. Jesus leaves. He goes to continue to teach and to preach in their synagogues. He goes to preach and to teach about what? The kingdom. His message would be the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is here. The Messiah you've been waiting for walks among you. That would have been Jesus' message. Yes, he heals diseases. Yes, afflictions. But why does he do it? It says in verse 36 of your text, if you have a copy, you can read there. He saw the crowds and he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. 
You see, the condition by the fall that we are in is one that is harassed and helpless. We may think we know best for ourselves, but the fact of the matter is we just do not. That is why Scripture tells us that we are like sheep. If you do research with sheep and shepherds and how they interact with one another, it is not a nice thing to be called a sheep. So you think it is because of nursery rhymes like Mary's little lamb, right? Which is actually, I think, talking about Mary and Jesus. I don't know all of that, but perhaps it's a good thing to be a sheep. It's not. They don't know what to do. In fact, history has told us that if you have a group of sheep and the wolf comes in, they will literally tear apart the sheep as the other ones look on helplessly. Someone to care for them. Otherwise, their hair will grow continuously to shave them off, to clean them up. They do not know how to defend themselves, and there, in fact, is no defense. In fact, there's a hilarious YouTube video if you want to look up the fainting goat. That's their defense. You scare them and they fall over as if dead. Not great. But the condition by the fall is that we are helpless. We are afflicted. In fact, we are a very pitiable sight indeed, and so thank God that Jesus has compassion on us. Thank God that he has compassion on us. And so he sees the masses, he sees their misery, and he sees their malignancy, and what he does is he tells his disciples, of which, if that is you, firstly and foremost, to pray. And so this is not the entire theme of today's message, but I just want to posit this question to you this morning. What is your prayer life like? How often are you doing this kind of praying? He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Does that bother you? That Jesus himself would say, the harvest is plentiful if we could just get enough workers? Does it not sound like our economy today, where people are getting $50 just to show up to a McDonald's interview? Not that there's anything wrong with McDonald's. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but those who want to actually do the work are lacking. He says, therefore, because that is the case, because we're helpless and afflicted, because we're hopeless in our malignancies, because we're miserable and pitiable in our state, and because Christ has compassion on us, he says, because all those things are true, and because there are many who might actually come to know him, he says, therefore, in verse 38, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Are you praying for your missionaries? I mean, earnestly? Or do we just cut checks? Are you praying that this church, that this body of believers, that some might be called into missions, that some might be actually sent out? Or are we just gathering together and then complaining when the air conditioner isn't working properly? So Jesus does more than this. He sees the need and he acts. And as we are called to be his servants, we are called to act too. He says he called to him these 12 disciples, gave them authority. As ambassadors, he gives them the same thing that he has. This authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and affliction. Then it says that he sent them out. This king is asking for ambassadors. Which leads us to the second thing. Not only is there the condition because of the fall, but there's the commission to the field. Now, perhaps, if you've been around for a while, you've heard the term a commissioned officer, right? 
in the military. This is somebody who is in a now paid position uh, uh, as, a, as an officer, which all officers are paid, but this commissioning to the field. This is this idea of sending. Now, you're correct in understanding that the Great Commission, if we think about it that way, happens in Matthew chapter 28. Don't worry. We'll get there eventually, I, I promise. Uh, but in Matthew chapter 10, there is another commission of which I think we talk about far less. Now, if you are reading through Matthew, which I hope that you are, you can spend time looking over who the uh, disciples were, who the 12 were, how they sent them out by twos, all the theology that's connected with that and all those kind of things. We're going to move on past that, and we're going to go to verses uh, 5 through 15. It says, These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to, here it is again, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Remember, that's the message that Jesus had because he was there on the earth at that time. The king is here. The kingdom is at hand. Verse 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bags for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy... Let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet. And when you leave that house, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. And I don't know about you, but that's scary to me. And so let's talk about the commission to the field. Because some might say, well, pastor, this commission was given just to the disciples. And I would say, yeah, you're right. Good hermeneutics, you're viewing it in context. What I would also say is, but if you take this passage, along with chapter 28, along with the church's tradition, along with the command for Christ to be as the master, you then can no longer say, well, this is for somebody else. See, in churches we often say, well, I don't, I don't have the gift of evangelism, Did my thing die? Is this not coming out anymore? I'm getting thrown off. The fact of the matter is, if you don't have the gift of evangelism, it doesn't mean you're not called to, to be an evangelist. Jesus assumes that those who would follow him will do the same thing he does, which is proclaiming his gospel. And so the commission to the field is for everybody. There's other theological things here that we can see that we could get into, and we won't totally, but there's this idea of limited atonement, but yet universal call, if that makes sense. And so Jesus says here, and praise God that this is different later, he says, don't go to the Gentiles. But the fact of the matter is that you're sitting here because eventually somebody did go to the Gentiles. Because eventually, after the resurrection, Jesus sent them out to everyone, everywhere, to all the corners of the earth. But here he says we have to come first. We have to come first to the people of the promise. 
And so that's where our message and this message differ slightly because they might say the kingdom is at hand and instead we would say the kingdom has already come and by the way, the king is coming again. But he gives them this authority to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons, and he tells them, do not receive anything for your duty. You have been given it freely, so you ought to give. He tells them about hospitality, that they should uh, require or at least expect as they go into different towns and different countries that they would be met gladly. And if they're not, what are they supposed to do? They're just supposed to move on. Argument right now that says the reason that you don't do evangelism more is because you're afraid. And I can make that argument because when I do evangelism, I'm afraid. And here's what you're afraid of, because here's what I'm afraid of. To some degree, if I'm totally honest, and this is least likely, I'm afraid somebody's going to punch me in the face. I'm afraid that I'm going to say something about Jesus, and they're just going to smack me right in the nose. Not that I probably don't deserve a punch in the face every once in a while, but that's a fear. I guess as we're really thinking about our culture and society, maybe you think that they're going to stab you or shoot you. To which I would say, well done, good and faithful servant. You will soon enter into the kingdom of heaven, right? But the other thing that we're generally afraid of when we think about this is we're afraid of emotional rejection, right? Or we're afraid of making somebody angry. We think, well, if I share this with them, they won't like me anymore. That'll sever our relationship. And so therefore, it will be done and then I'll lose every single opportunity to share with them in the future. Or we're afraid of failure. We're afraid that if I share the gospel with them and they don't turn to Jesus, then then I'm failing. Then I'm not doing a good enough job. See, Jesus expects that people are going to reject them. The commission to the field, he says, is to be active in participation It's not the results. The commander who's on the lines takes his his, uh, commands from somebody higher. And he does the best that he can in the field. And then whatever happens in the field, happens in the field. He says, if they don't accept you, just shake the dust off from your feet and move on. So I want to ask you, before we move on, What is it that's keeping you from doing this? I mean, do an honest inventory of your heart. Don't just say, well, because I don't have the gift of evangelism. And don't say to me, well, because I I don't have enough knowledge. Or don't say, well, because I haven't had training. If, side note, if the only thing that's keeping you from sharing the gospel with others is education, Come to dinner with me. If it's that you don't have the resources, let me know. I will buy you gospel tracts or I'll buy you a study Bible or whatever it is that you feel like you need. I'm going to posit that the reason, if we're really honest, that we don't do this is because we're fearful. We're fearful of their response, people's response. Which, by the way, I guess you're in good company because Jesus is now going to talk about the risk-reward. He gave the command, right? He issued a statement And now Jesus is going to tell us about the risk-reward. He's going to talk about the investment strategy, if it's a one-to-three ratio or whatever the thing was talking about up there. And so what's the cost to follow Jesus? As we've talked about this before, I'm going to skip around a little bit. So if you have a copy of God's Word, first 
16 through 18, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Again, not a whole lot of defense there. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And then he goes on, if that's not good enough for you, in 21 through 25, brother will deliver brother over to death, father his children, children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my namesake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciples to be like their teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul or Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? And then he finishes it out a little bit later. Oh, shoot. I'm sorry. Whatever. We're moving on. 34 through 31. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have not come to set a man, for I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against his mother, and a daughter in law against her mother in law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's the cost. So might you get punched in the face? Yeah, he, he told you that. You might. You might get delivered over for death. You might get arrested. You might get flogged. Your sons and daughters won't like you anymore. Your brothers and sisters won't like you and your mother. Your mothers and fathers won't like you anymore. That is the cost. So we're right to understand that. And it's not my job as your pastor to guard you from God's word. In fact, I refuse to do that. If he wrote it, this is Jesus, he's sending them out, and he says, I know all this. This is going to happen. And he says, but look, I'm sending you out anyway. I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. I'm sending you out. And so because all this is going to happen, he says, be tough-minded and yet tender-hearted. There's things in Scripture where it talks about he set his face like flint to go towards Jerusalem, meaning he, he could not be dissuaded. Jesus knowingly sends us into danger. He knowingly knows that there will be opposition. It is inevitable. It is unavoidable. We will be opposed by family and also by the government. And if that's not already happening, then I just, I guess, hold on to your pants because it's coming. The only thing I ask for is, will you buy me paper and ink so when I'm in prison I can still write to you guys? And somebody's got to take care of my kids. So make sure you do that. But opposition is inevitable. You will be betrayed. You will be persecuted. You will be hated. And in all of that, understand that you're becoming more and more like Christ. In all of that, understand that you're being obedient to his call. In all of that, you are fulfilling what Jesus asked his apostles to pray for over 2,000 years ago. In 
And so he doesn't just leave it there with the cost. He tells us about the reward. He tells us about the care. Now, if you invest money with anything, here's what they do. They give you something called a prospectus, okay? In my understanding of this, or to correct me, because obviously I've been investing my money wrong for a while then, but here's what they do. They, they will give you a sheet of paper, or on your phone, or email, or however they do it nowadays. They'll give you a paper that will tell you what this, what this, what this mutual fund, what this bank account is going to do. They'll give you some time frame. They'll say, hey, over the last year, three year, five year, ten years, this is one over 20 years, this is what it's done, and this is kind of what you can expect as a percent to return. And so you then have to count the cost and say, okay, I could buy my new Corvette right now, or whatever it is that you're into, I don't know, and, and maybe it's not a Corvette, maybe it's a, it's a Honda Civic, and whatever, whatever kind of money you've got, whatever. I don't have Corvette money, but I'm just, okay. So you put that into this mutual fund or stock or whatever, and they say, this is what you might be able to expect. This is Jesus' prospectus. Jesus is saying, yes, this is the risk. We're going to get to the reward in a minute. But in the meantime, over the average, this is what this has done. This is what you can expect because this is what's happening to other people also. So as you count this cost and reward, be aware of what we all have historically seen happen that is proof. It's on paper. This is what's done. It's inarguable. And for that, he talks about the care of the Matthew 10, 19 through 20. They deliver you over, not if. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. And by the way, I would add here, that's why you don't be anxious, because he doesn't say in that day, in that week, in that month. He says in that hour. The story escapes me. You can Google it. Uh, I'll look it up and I'll tell you next week. There's a story of this, these two theologians, and one is just up there on the, on the podium really doing a great job teaching heresy, and there's a guy who's going to have to debate him in just a minute, furiously writing notes, writing notes, writing notes, writing notes, and then he, he gets up to do and just smashes the guy's case, all the pieces. And after the debate, it was such a one-sided victory that the other people who were in the debate, watching the debate, came up and looked at the guy's notepad of paper afterwards, and all he wrote over and over was, please give more light to the Lord, over and over and over again. And so in that hour, we will be given what to say. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. And in 26 through 33, so have no fear of them. That's for you. And that's for me. Because if we're honest, we do have fear. It's what keeps us from sharing. I have fear that if I share this with them, that then I'm not going to be invited for the wedding when it finally happens. Or I'm afraid that if I share this with them, that the relationship will, will be ended. They won't want to see me or talk. I have any ability to speak into their life. I'm afraid that if I say what the Bible actually says, that one day the cops are going to come in and arrest me for hate speech. I'm afraid that when that happens, because it's inevitably going to happen, who's going to take care of my children and my wife? What if they're still young? But he says, so have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden 
that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground. But even the heirs, the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you are more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I before my Father in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So in essence, what he does is he says, listen, here's the condition of everybody ourselves included, if only by God's grace we've been rescued out of it. So because of that condition, the commission is yours to go out into the field and mine, to go out into the field and to share this gospel with those who need it. The cost of following is you will be betrayed, you will be hated, you might get punched in the face, you might get arrested. All these things may happen. But what Jesus says is the Father cares for you. The Father cares for you more than you can imagine. The Father cares for you enough to send his Son to die for you of which cognitively we understand, but spiritually we have no framework to understand that cost. In fact, he says two, two sparrows are sold for a penny. Well, in, in Luke, I think is what it is. Yeah, Luke 12, 6, he says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? So here's the thing. Sparrows are so cheap, they throw an extra one in for free. You give them two pennies, they give you five instead of just the normal four. Did you guys catch that in here? Super cheap. He says, and you are of more value than many sparrows. Like maybe a quarter's worth, right? I don't know. Just kidding. And the fact of the matter is, is that God will bring all this to light. God will be the judge. Fear not the person who kills the body, but fear the one who can kill the soul. Understand that our reward will by no means be lost. Martin Luther, in one of his um, hymns, he writes, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And boy, did he nail it. 2 Timothy 2, 12-13 says, If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And so we've talked about investment, we've talked about risk. I want to talk to you about your reward. He says, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones, even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. And then if we can go back to verse 32, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. You see, in this life, we can be obedient to this, and the reward that we get is being a blessing to other people. I have a buddy who, uh, I can't make him stop doing this. Um, we'll, we'll talk on the phone. He, 
he, he went over um, to study the doctoral program and stuff like that. He's back now. And uh, when we talk on the phone, he, I witnessed to him back when I was in college, and uh, he accepted Christ. God saved him. And every time we talk on the phone, almost every time, he'll, he'll say, you know, I, I love you, thank you. I'm like, I, I didn't do anything except for just tell you what I was on fire about because God had just saved me. He says, yeah, I, I know, but if it wasn't for you, if it wasn't for that. And I am not saying this at all to puff myself up in front of you. I'm simply saying that. I think Jesus' reward is more than enough for your investment. That the King of kings and the Lord of lords in heaven before the Father would herald your name because you have heralded his? This isn't the God who even the angels in heaven have to cover their faces and cover their feet and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And in fact, God is so holy, they say nothing other than that. They surround his throne and they give him holy, holy, holy is the God Almighty forever and ever and ever. They do that morning, evening, and night for all of eternity. And that is the God in front of which Jesus will say to you by name, to him, Father, this is the one who is a good and faithful servant. I don't know if you have a retirement account. I can tell you the best one to invest in, though, is the kingdom of Christ. Is buying stock in Jesus' blood for its value never diminishes and its returns are eternal. John Calvin has this prayer. I'm not a hardcore Calvinist, but this is a good prayer, so I'm going to read it to you. He says, Grant, Almighty God, that as you so kindly call us daily by your voice, meekly and calmly to offer ourselves to be ruled by you, and since you have exalted us to a high degree of honor by freeing us from the dread of the devil and from the tyranny which kept us in miserable fear, and have also favored us with the spirit of adoption and of hope, O grant that we, being mindful of these benefits, may ever submit ourselves to you and desire only to raise our voice for this end that the whole world may submit itself to you, and that those who seem now to rage against you may at length be brought as well as we to render you obedience, so that your Son Christ may be the Lord of all, to the end that you alone may be exalted, and that we may be made subject to you, and be at length raised up above and become partakers of that glory which has been obtained for us by Christ our Lord." Amen. And so the fact is, as I hope, that by today's message, by what Jesus said and what he has called you to, not me, you're not doing this for me. It is my prayer that your prayer would be that God would grant us, grant us a supernatural awareness of the condition of the lost. That we would have his eyes to see others. And that also then that God might empower us for a sacrificial obedience 
to the commission of Christ. Christ calls us to a costly service of opposition and suffering and yet promises us through faith God's sovereign care and protection will sustain us and in the end even reward us. Let's pray. Oh, greatest Lord Jesus, help us. Help us to pray as you have commanded that you might send out laborers for the harvest. For you have seen its plenty as well as our lack. Jesus, we the heirs of those who went before us and their obedience, we thank you for their good stewardship of your message and work. God, we praise you that your message of salvation did not stop with the Jews alone, but also came to us Gentiles. We praise you for all those men and women who braved and even still brave affliction, poverty, and rejection for your namesake. We pray for their safety, provision, and success in the work that you have called them to. Lord Jesus, we confess that we are often fearful to speak and act on your behalf for your account in your namesake. And we know that those who are in mission as a vocation must sometimes experience the same fear. And so we pray for your boldness for ourselves and all the saints that we might work as salt and light in this world as you have called us to be. Lord, keep our hearts and minds focused on the race that is set before us and on the goal of the reward of everlasting life, which was already pre-purchased by your blood for such as us. So therefore, grant us boldness as we invest in your eternal kingdom. It's by your name we pray. Amen.